So we have come as far as Colossians 3. So we finished up 2 last week. We'll be moving on to chapter 3 this week. Uh, we saw Paul lay out in these previous chapters in Colossians the preeminence of Christ. So Christ's preeminence in his creation as sustainer of his creation. Uh, he is preeminent above the principalities and, and powers that he created. And he is above the ordinances, the institutions of man, which we saw last week. But it's not enough for us as Christians to recognize his preeminence in these things. We have to recognize his preeminence in our own lives. Because if he is preeminent above all of these other things, he should also be preeminent in our lives. He should be the one sitting on the throne. He should be number one. So, in short, in one sentence, what we're going to see here today is Paul telling the church at Colossae, and by extension us as believers, to let your earthly practice be worthy of your heavenly position. Okay? Now, we're not working for our heavenly position. That has already been accomplished. If you are a believer in Christ, you have been solidified. Your place in heaven is being saved for you. So we're not talking about working towards our heavenly position, but we want our earthly practice to be reflective of that heavenly position that we've been given. Verse 1. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So back to verse 1, it says, If then you are raised with Christ. In the Greek, this reads as since. Since you were raised with Christ. And Paul has already established that we were raised with Christ. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says that you were buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So therefore, in light of the fact that you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. And seek is constantly be seeking. It's that present perfect tense. So you have done it, you are doing it, and you should continue to do it. So constantly be seeking those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Um, in Mark sixteen nineteen, and this is right after Jesus gave the Great Commission, it says, So then, after the Lord had spoken to them of the Great Commission, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Verse 2, it says, set your mind on things above. And again, he's using that perfect, the present perfect tense. He's saying, constantly be setting your mind on things above. It's something that we continue to do. We don't do it one day and then slack off the next day. We have to be disciplining, disciplining ourselves to constantly be setting our mind on things above. Because it's easy to get distracted with things down here. And I've seen it happen too many times, and it's sad. But we need to 
mortify the flesh. We're, we're coming to that. Mortify, mortify the things of the earth and set our minds on heavenly things. Um, again, in, in brief, Paul says, live up to what Christ has done for you. And this simple principle of Christian living is more powerful than any of these rules and regulations of men. Okay. Simple. You are made full in him. And that's from chapter two, verse 10. So live out that fullness in your daily life. Okay. Do we, do we see where all this is going? Christ is the head of everything. Therefore, he needs to be head in our lives. And then we'll start looking at um, what that actually looks like. What does it look like when Christ is the head of your life? Before we get to what it does look like, we're going to look at what it doesn't look like, the things that you're supposed to put off. So if we look at the early apostles, you've got Peter. He was crucified upside down. You've got Matthew. He was skinned alive. You've got Andrew, who was crucified. Stephen was stoned. Philip was impaled. James was beheaded. Do you think that these guys were struggling with whether or not to watch an R-rated movie? Do you think that they were struggling with whether they should watch internet pornography? Do you think that's something that they even, that even occupied a space in their mind? I don't think so. Uh, I think that they were so focused on the heavenly things that they put aside those earthly things and they were solely focused to the death. They were focused on those things to the death. So it kind of makes me take a step back and take inventory in my own life. And I'm not preaching at y'all this morning. I'm talking to myself and y'all are just listening. So, so don't think that I come at it from that view, but um, I do take inventory in my own life, and there are some things that need to change, some things that are okay and some things that are good. But in light of these guys, these early apostles, and their bent towards Christ, uh, being solely focused on that, even to martyrdom, that makes me put things in perspective. If you are wrestling with some kind of junk in your life, and I would be willing to bet that everyone is. Um, if you don't, you just don't know what it is yet. It's time to take your heart before the Lord and ask Him to help you with that. God, you're eternal, you're all-powerful, and I'm not. And I want you to take my heart and change it and form it and set it on those things which are above. And God isn't going to dangle this carrot in front of us. You know, you need to set your mind on things above. But I know you can't really do it. Uh, so here's this little carrot you need to work towards, but you're never going to get to. He doesn't do that. Later in the chapter, he's going to say, Fathers, do not provoke your children. So if he tells us not to provoke our earthly children, how much more is he not going to provoke us as our Heavenly Father? So he doesn't dangle this carrot in front of our faces. This is something that is attainable for Christians. Okay. And not just those early apostles that we just talked about, 
but for all of us, okay? And don't think that it's by your own power either. I could never set my mind on heavenly things through my flesh. The flesh is what we're trying to do away with as we're setting our mind towards heavenly things. Um, so it is by the power of Jesus Christ that you can wrangle the flesh, mortify it, do away with it, and set your mind on heavenly things. I mean, even if nothing else, everything you see around us is fading away. There's no sense in putting stock in anything on the earth, because it's all going to be dust, less than dust. It's going to be transformed, but those things that are in heaven, those treasures that we're storing up, those are eternal things. And that's where we should place our treasures. In Matthew six nineteen through 21, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Everything down here is fading away. The constants that people thought were unchanging, for example, the speed of light, uh, the Earth's rotational speed, those are actually slowing down. They're not constants, as scientists have thought for such a long time. But everything is winding to a halt. Okay, so there's no sense in putting any stock on anything down here. Uh, focus on the only true constant, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 3, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We see this word hidden, and it may confuse us a little bit, but there's there's really no reason for confusion. You just need to look at hidden as being hidden for you, not hidden from you. So our life is hidden with Christ in God. He's keeping it secure under his wing, as some scripture would say. Um, and in 1 Peter 1.4, it speaks of resurrection, this inheritance, as an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We remember that Christ is in us, the hope of glory, but that hope won't be hope for much longer. You see, hope that is realized is no longer hope. But that glory that is in Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Someday, someday soon, you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, so in light of those things, in light of the fact that you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God, put to death your members which are on the earth. And those include fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked 
when you lived in them. Starting back up at verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. He's saying in light of these things, by a once and for all act, and at once put to death everything that grows out from this world in you. So we're doing away with the old man, with those workings of the flesh. They were putting them off. Put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication. That word fornication speaks of um, adultery. It includes fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, harlotry, really anything outside of the marriage bed. Okay, That's a very general fornication. Uncleanness speaks of an impure, a lustful, or even a luxurious type of life. And it can also be seen as talking about just something that you have impure motives towards. So uncleanness. Passion. When we see the word passion, uh, it's kind of neutral for us. It could be a bad passion. It could be a good passion. If you have a passion for your job, we would say that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's a good thing. But in this case, the Greek word that we get our translation passion from is speaking specifically of an evil passion. So it's not neutral in this sense. It's speaking of a depraved passion or an inordinate affection. And then evil desires is pretty self-explanatory. Evil desires. And covetousness, which is idolatry. This one was interesting because the Greek kind of separates out this covetousness. It puts it in its own category. And we see that Paul connects it to idolatry directly. Okay, he, he does not stutter his words. He says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So what do we do with that? Well, it actually makes sense if you think about what covetousness is. When you covet something, you're placing your own desires above that of God. So you're saying, I need that more than he does. Therefore, you're placing yourself on the throne of your life, knocking Christ off if he was there. Um, if he wasn't there, then, you know, that'd be normal for you to put yourself up right there, right? So you're knocking Christ off, putting yourself on the throne, saying, I need that. That something is going to fill a void in me that Christ can't fill. That's what you say when you covet something. And it is idolatry. It's self-idolatry. You're putting yourself above God. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience is just speaking of those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ. That's all it's saying. The sons of disobedience. Uh, They have not accepted that free gift of salvation. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Now this is interesting. In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So every one of us at one time walked in these things that Paul is saying to put off, to mortify, to kill. Those things in the world 
We once walked in. I did. I know you did before you came to Christ. Now, when you do come to Christ, things change. And we'll look at how things change here in just a second. But it's it's interesting that all of us were once in that place. You know what that does in my heart? It makes me look at someone who is currently there, and I see myself in them. And then I see the transformative work that the gospel has done in me. And I think, man, I want them to have that. I see them struggling. They're in those things which I have now put off. And I'm free because of that. And I want them to have that same freedom. And the gospel has transformed me in that way. So I look at them, I say, man, I want you to have the gospel. And that's beautiful. In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. None of us are immune. We've all been there and we know what it's like. And hopefully you know what it's like on the other side. And if you don't, then today's a great day to get that sorted out. And you can put off all these things. And you will find freedom. And I'll talk about that again in a second. Um, down in verse 11. Verse 8, though. But now you yourselves are put are to put off all these. Again, another list of things that we are to put off. And Paul starts to kind of liken these things to a pair of clothes. He says, put off, and then later he'll say, put on, give a list of things that you should uh, exhibit as a Christian. This idea of dirty clothes. If you're working on a car for eight hours during the day, and uh, what does that do to your clothes? You probably get greasy, nasty. Uh, but you don't really think about it when you're working on the car. It's fine. You expect to get dirty. You come into into the house for supper, and your wife or your mom's cooking dinner for you. Very kind of them. And you sit down at the dinner table covered in grease. Hands are greased up. You're getting marks on the doorknob and everything. Your mom or your wife says, Honey, what are you doing? You are disgusting. Go change your clothes. Get washed up before dinner. So that's the same idea. When, you, when you're in the middle of it, when you're in all these things, it's fine. Because you don't know what else there is. You haven't found Christ to let you know that these things are not good. You need to take these things off. But when you come into Christ, everything changes. Your perspective on those clothes changes. And with some prompting, you realize, I'm a mess. I need to take these off, put something new on. So you go, change your clothes, come back to dinner, everything's great. You enjoy a nice dinner. So that's kind of the same as a Christian. When you come into Christ, then we take these dirty clothes off and put new clothes on. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Now here's the grease. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Now, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, I think you got those. That's pretty easy to understand. This filthy language that it speaks of is different than the coarse jesting that Ephesians 5.4 talks about. 
So in Ephesians 5.4, there's a word that's translated coarse jesting. Uh, just means like, you know, unclean jokes, sexual in nature, something like that. But in this verse 8 here in Colossians, the filthy language is not necessarily talking about that. When it comes in a list with all of these other things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, the context favors the translation abusive language. Okay, so instead of like the sexually perverted jokes and all of that, we're talking about more of an abusive language. And we can just tell that because it's paired with anger, wrath, wrath, malice, blasphemy. Does that make sense? So verse 9, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. In Christ, the body of flesh, our sinful nature, has been put off. Through his true circumcision. Okay, we know in in the Old Testament, circumcision is the cutting away of a small piece of flesh. And that was said to purify you. You know, um, It was actually part of the law. They were required to do that as Israelites. But Christ, through his spiritual circumcision, has cut away the flesh of our hearts. He's allowed us to put these things off, these fleshly desires of the heart, and come into a new heart that desires to set our mind on things above. Our spiritual circumcision in Christ means that the old nature has been put off and we now walk in the newness of life in him and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, the image of God. Verse 11, where there is neither Jew, neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. It says, where there is neither. This means there cannot be these things in the body of Christ. These distinctions are no longer distinctions when we are in Christ. There's neither Greek nor Jew. That's a racial distinction. There's no racial distinctions in Christ. We're all brothers and sisters. There's neither circumcised nor uncircumcised. Uh, the difference in legal standing between those circumcised and those not circumcised has been done away with. There's no longer that legal distinction. Barbarian. This would be more like a class distinction, uh, like rungs on the social ladder. Uh, the Greeks would use this term barbarian for anyone who is unfamiliar with their Greek language. So that would be anyone on the outside. They saw them as less cultured than they were. Scythian, now this is a rank of barbarian. It was the lowest of the low. So, like, you had all barbarians, and then the Scythian was at the very lowest part of the barbarian um, distinction. So, none of that is anymore. That's done away with. Slave nor free. 
In 1 Corinthians 7.22, it says, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. And that goes straight into the last part of the verse, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all. He's all that you need. He's all that you will ever need. And he's all that completes you. So we are completed in Christ. In Philippians, at the beginning, and some other letters from Paul, he addresses himself as a bondservant, a doulos of Christ. So he is a slave by choice. You see, he was a freed man before he came to Christ. But when he came to Christ, he found a good master, and he wanted to live his life for that master. So he chose to become a bond slave, a doulos of Christ. But Christ is all and in all. Christ is everything we need for justification, sanctification, and glorification. 1 Corinthians 1.30 But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. And in all, and inasmuch as everyone believes in Christ, Christ will be given to you. He will dwell in you and inhabit you. So in that sense, if you are in Christ, Christ is in you. And also in that sense, we're all equal. There's not one of us that has more of Christ in him than another. We all have the fullness of Christ dwelling in us. Now, of course, we are all in different points in our life. And we all have different sanctification processes. We're working through different things. So in that sense, you know, one may be further along in their walk with Christ than someone else. But in the sense that you have been given Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. In that, all Christians are equal. There is no distinction. Verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on. So now we've moved past take off, put off these things. We're moving into put on these things. This is what the Christian should look like. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. As Paul starts to describe what the new man should look like, uh, he gives us this picture to reference. Okay, This picture is of one who puts on tender mercies. And I thought it was interesting, this tender mercies can also be translated as bowels of compassion. And that's pretty cool. It doesn't make sense to us, I know. But the bowels seen in was seen in the Hebrew culture as the deepest part of you. So where we would say, like, I love you with all my heart, 
they would say, I love you with all my bowels. Which is, I know, it's confusing to us. But that's how, that's how it was. Yeah, your wife for, for Valentine's Day, she writes a little small intestine on your Valentine's card, says, I love you with all my bowels. But that's what it's speaking of. It's this love, these, this compassion, the tender mercies that come from the deepest part of you. It's not something that you can fake. Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Now, this we talked about in Philippians, okay? The unity in Christ and the unity that comes from humility. It says bearing with one another. This is the unity of mind that was talked about in Philippians 2.5 that says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If we all have that same mind esteeming others above ourselves, how can we complain against someone? How can we argue with them if they are above us? You see how that works? If everyone is exhibiting the mind of Christ, all of a sudden, all these complaints and everything like that kind of melt away. Imagine <laughs> imagine somebody in the body of Christ having a complaint against someone else. I'm glad that doesn't happen here. That's a joke, because it does. <laughs> it happens everywhere where people are. Um, so what this is telling me is if we do have a complaint or a quarrel against someone, uh, the most likely source is unforgiveness in one or both of these parties. If we had fully forgiven someone, or if they had fully forgiven us, then there would be no need to complain about it or to bicker about it, because it's settled. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. Philippians 2, 3-4, through 4, In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. When you esteem others as better than yourselves, how can you complain? How can you argue against them? Instead of chewing somebody out for something, maybe there needs to be some forgiveness there. And this is my favorite part right here. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. If Christ has gone to such lengths to forgive me, who am I to withhold that from someone else? If Christ has gone to such lengths to forgive me for everything that I've done, there's plenty. Who am I to withhold that forgiveness from someone else? You say, well, they don't deserve my forgiveness. They're garbage. They don't deserve that. The good news is, I didn't either. And you didn't either. But Christ still afforded us his forgiveness. And likewise, we have to do that for others. And it doesn't say, so also you could do if you felt like it. So also, you must do. So this is a necessity. Forgiveness is not optional. It's a requirement. 
But above all these things, and these are all great things, but above this, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Now, again, in this culture, the bond of perfection has talking about an outer garment that would secure all of the underlayers. So these underlayers of their garments would be big and floppy. They'd flop all around. This bond of perfection would secure all of those underlayers to them. So we get this idea of love kind of holding everything else together. Remember Jesus said that on these, all the command, all the uh, prophets and the law hang. He was talking about love. So every, every piece of the law can be fulfilled through love. Love is what holds it all to you, what holds it all together. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. Jesus left his disciples a legacy of peace. In John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So Jesus literally left this peace with his disciples. This is the same peace which we need to let rule in our hearts. And you have to let it. It has to be a choice that you let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Because you can choose not to let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Nobody wants to be there. That's not fun. So we choose to let the peace of God rule in our hearts, to which also you were called in one body. When you were called by Christ out of the old man into the new, you were called into this body and to let the peace of Christ rule in you. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, <laughs> um, I've heard some, some things someplace, don't even remember where, that Christians should literally be singing to each other all the time. That's not right. Please don't. <laughs> I promise I won't, if you won't. Now, Beth, Summer, Emma, y'all are fine. You can sing to me. That's fine. I'm not going to sing to you, though, because nobody would enjoy that. Um, but this is the natural outflow of letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay? And it's worth noting that God has magnified His Word over His name. You remember, the? Um, it's been talked about before, but when the scribes who were writing down the Old Testament came to the name of God, um, expressed as YHVH, they took out the vowels, just left the consonants, so it was impronounceable. When they came to that in their writing, they would stop, bathe themselves, get a fresh pen, dip it in fresh ink, and then write the name of God. It was very, very highly revered. 
the name of God. In Psalm 138.2, it says, For you have magnified your word above your name. So God has actually placed a greater emphasis on his word than on his name. So how much power does his word have to transform your life? If he has magnified that above his name, that means it's pretty important. So when we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs, we will be doing these things. We will be singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. That's also something that you can't fake. You can't fake singing in your heart. I can sing words that pop up on the screen out loud, and I can fake that, and I, I don't have to really mean that. It's easy. But you can't fake the singing in your heart. And hopefully those two things, your physical singing and the singing in your heart, match up on Sunday morning. Hopefully you mean the words that you sing. That's my prayer for all of us. But you can fake it if it's not from your heart. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, in word or deed, whether you're literally doing something or you're speaking, whatever you're doing, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, Jesus is at the center of our life. He's at that number one position. Um. When God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments, he said, you shall not have any other gods before me. Now, our translation before makes it sound like you should not have any gods ahead of me. But that's not actually what it's saying. He's saying you shall have no other gods before me. Around me, beside me, behind me, in front of me. No other gods in my presence. That's the same idea here. Jesus is not one of the things in our life, one of those ruling principles. He is the ruling principle. There are no other gods before him, around him, beside him, behind him, in front of him. He is the only one. He is the preeminent one. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Shouldn't we be thankful? I'm thankful for a lot of things, but especially for this free gift. That's something I'm thankful for. That's something I'm most thankful for. So let's remember that free gift as we go back out into our jobs, to our families. Let's live it out uh, with Christ in the preeminent position in our lives. And I challenge you this week to go back and read through these things. Read through the things that you're to put off that came with the old man. Read through those things that you're to put on, those new garments for dinner. Hey, just read through them. Let them soak in your mind. Let the Word of God dwell in you. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Um, just on dwell, it means to be comfortable in you. It's kind of a settling down and remaining in one place. When I, well, when me or my family walks into my grandparents' house, they say, come on in, have seats. And that's kind of weird to people who are not in my family. But they say, have seats. And that just tells us we're there to stay a little while. Like they're inviting us in. They're telling us to make ourselves comfortable where we are. So we do. We go in. We kind of nestle into the chair, get comfortable. That's this idea of dwelling. So when the Word of God dwells in us, these are the outflows. This is what results from that dwelling of the Word of God. So let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Let's close with a word of prayer.